Good morning, everyone. Today we are moving into part two of our series on the Reformation, where we're going to look at uh, historical and theological topics. And um, uh, but we're going to be speaking today, uh, in, at least in our third point, to bring this all home, to uh, bring it back around to what the Bible says about these topics that we will introduce in an historical fashion. I want to uh, read from Romans chapter 3, and we're going to start in verse 20, and then we're going to go through chapter 4 and verse 5. So go ahead and open your Bibles there if you would. And that starts on page 941 if you're using the Pew Bible in front of you. I'm just going to read uh, those few paragraphs to us. Starting in Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law? By this faith, by no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the great truths found in this passage of Scripture. I thank you for justification that is in Christ by grace through faith. I thank you also for great men who've gone before who have uh, recognized how central this theme is in Scripture and how central it must be in our own lives and in the preaching of the church. Men who have understood these things and passed them on to us. But I thank you most of all for the redemption that is in Christ. I thank you for these truths. And I pray that you would help us today as we as we deal in uh, deep theological topics, I pray that you would help us to be alert, to be focused on what you have for us, to realize how this relates to us. It's so important that we understand how we can be justified before God. And so I pray that you'd help us, help us to set aside what is distracting the things this week that, that uh, were exciting or were disappointing or the things upcoming or even weather things that are going on in, in parts of our country and different parts of the world. We set those things aside, Lord, and we ask that you would help us do that so that we can focus on this topic, which is so central to the gospel, so central to our understanding of what it means to know you. 
So we ask for your blessing. We seek to honor you in this time. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're going to be answering some questions today, asking and answering some questions. On this topic of the Reformation and justification, you can see you have a handout in your bulletin there, and you can take some notes there. There's plenty of room to take notes. There are some blanks to fill in if that kind of keeps you on your toes. Uh, But we're going to be talking about justification, particularly as it was discussed by the Reformers during the time of the Reformation and then why we care. Because, again, this is 500-year-old history, and why do we care? Well, we're going to see why we care. We're going to ask and answer the following questions, really uh, focusing kind of on them, and, and you will hear the answers as we go through this. First of all, how is it possible for a person to stand before God as righteous? How is that even possible? How can a person achieve such a status in God's eyes? How, how does that happen? Can that happen? What does the Bible say? In other words, how can a person be justified before God? How can a person be justified before God? And how important is that question anyway? Why do we really care? Or is it just a topic in a book of theology? Well, in answering that question, one one, uh, church historian, Alistair McGrath, wrote that justification constitutes the real center of the theological system of the Christian church. For him, it's the center of the theological system of the, of the Christian church. Martin Luther himself said that justification is the first and chief article of Christian theology. So he had it pretty high in his estimation. Philip Melanchthon, who worked closely with Luther and was sort of his heir, he said it is the most important topic in Christian teaching. And John Calvin himself said that it's the main hinge upon which religion turns. Elsewhere it's said that justification is the article on which the church stands or falls. So talking about this topic and understanding justification itself, we can see is not just a theological topic that's for people in seminaries or who want to write books or who want to think about these things, but it's central and crucial really to the gospel itself. It's central and crucial to our understanding of how a person can be made right with God. More recently, theologian R.C. Sproul said, the issue that divided the Roman Catholics from the Protestant reformers was not a secondary or tertiary doctrine. The dispute focused on the essence of the gospel. Some have argued that sola fide, that is justification by faith alone, is central to the Christian faith but not essential. I contend, however, that it is essential to the gospel in that without sola fide, we do not have the gospel. And without the gospel, we have no salvation. And so that's why we're talking about this topic, not just because they thought it was important long ago, but because it relates to the gospel itself. And and so Amy has put together these banners, uh, and they're all in Latin, so that's that's why, you know, it's not... She didn't misspell anything. <laughs> they're, they're in Latin. And so sola scriptura, scripture alone, we're going to talk about that. Sola fide, faith alone, we're going to talk about that today. And then we have over here uh, solus Christus, Christ alone. We're going to talk about that a little bit today too. Sola gratia, by, by grace alone. And then soli deo gloria, to God alone be the glory. And so these were sort of the themes. These are not the only themes. These, these are sort of guideposts that help us understand the arguments that were going on during this time. And, and we're going to be focusing today on justification itself. And we're going to be looking at the fact that it is by faith alone, by grace alone. And so um, we are uh, moving that direction. That's why we're talking about those topics. But But um, we're going to be looking at the fact that during this time, during the time of the Reformation, 500 years ago, in the church, uh, before, just before the Reformation began, there was great confusion about this topic of justification. I've just read all these quotes, and I agree with these, about how central justification is itself to understanding the gospel, to understanding how we can be made right with God. It's, it's crucial, it's central, and yet when you look at the history of the church, the theology of the church leading up to this period, you could see that there was really no agreement about how exactly a person was justified, how a person was, was made right before God or declared right before God or could be considered righteous before God. There was no agreement within the church itself. And in fact, not only was there there no agreement, but there was really no agreement about how important it even was. Did it even matter? And so 
you see that there was, there was kind of confusion going on during that time. And, and so I think this is a timely topic for us to talk about, not just because we have the 500th anniversary of, uh, of um, Luther nailing his 95 theses on the door of the church there in, in Wittenberg. That's coming up, and that's certain, certainly a cause for us to look at this. But because of the confusion that existed during this time in the church, it exists nowadays in evangelicalism in our country. I was, I was forwarded an article and read another article this week talking about a, a recent uh, survey that was done, a Pew Research survey that was done, and, and there was great confusion. It was, it was on the topic of the difference between uh, Protestant doctrine and Roman Catholic doctrine and, and some of these things as regards justification and whatnot, and there were no clear results. It was the, 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 the results were very confusing, or the, the state or the understanding of the evangelical church broadly in our country is uh, that they are confused about the topic of justification. How does it happen? And who cares? Does it really even matter? And so it's important for us to look, up, look at these things, not just because it's history, but because it has to do with us. And I think maybe there'll be some clarification, maybe in our minds, uh, even just in this room as we look at these topics. And so we're going to see that uh, for the reformers, Though there was great confusion in the church when the reformers started their work uh, 500 years ago, you can see that they saw that it was absolutely essential. It was it was central. It was essential. It was it was maybe the most important discussion of their day, and they were willing to stake their lives on it. And so I think we should be able to look at it and and uh, examine it at least. We're not staking our lives on it yet, but uh, they were willing to do so, and I. I pray that we would be willing to do so if the time arose. And so we're going to look, first of all, at the pre-Reformation views of justification and kind of see where things stood in the church, how they understood some things. And you might hear some echoes of things that you've heard maybe in casual conversation with people or, or maybe you've seen it on Facebook. That's my great go-to when I, when I want to find bad theology. I just refer to Facebook because there's a whole lot of it on there. A whole, I don't even have to be specific and point, point out, but there's a lot of it on there that's really bad. And so... Um, uh, but what, how did they see it? You, you, you might hear some, some echoes of this in your own, maybe some, from some things that you've read, maybe some articles that you've read, or maybe some books that you've owned, or conversations that you've had, or maybe churches you've attended. And so we're going to see that some of the things that, uh, that were involved in the confusion that was going on in the medieval church, actually some of that confusion exists nowadays, 500 years later, but in the evangelical church. And so we're going to talk about that. So we're going to look at the pre-Reformation views on justification. And the first one that we want to look at was that uh, one of the views was that grace was essential, but it wasn't sufficient by itself, or it wasn't sufficient alone. There were uh, there are these Latin terms. They use Latin for all of their um, intellectual works and, and academic works and theological stuff. And so that's why everything's named in Latin because that was, that was kind of the language of the day that you would write stuff in. And, and so they had, they had this one view called the Via Antiqua, which is essentially the old way or the, the antique way, right? And uh, the, the, the way that they saw, in, according to this old way, the way they saw justification happening was, first of all, that God freely bestows grace. It's the kind of grace by which a person is made able to become righteous in themselves. Right? So it's a, we're going to talk about a, how they defined grace. But it's God freely bestows grace on someone, kind of giving them the ability then to, to become righteous practically in their lives. That's the first step. Secondly, the individual is thus empowered to cooperate with God's grace. That's a good thing. And then thirdly, this meritorious cooperation combined with and made possible with that grace that, that God had put in their lives resulted in their ability to obtain eternal life or be justified. Right? So it's kind of this process. And, and that's the older way. And so grace was essential. Without grace, this couldn't happen. But it, it wasn't alone. Grace was given. You cooperated with it. And when you obeyed to a certain point and grew to a certain level of righteousness, then you were declared to be righteous or you were justified before God. That's the way they viewed it. That's the way they viewed justification, uh, at least according to this old way. And so you can see that uh, grace, grace is there. Grace is important. They understood that. But, it, but you had to supplement it. You had to respond correctly to it to a sufficient degree that you would grow in righteousness to the point where you could be declared to be righteous before God, thus justified. 
right? So that was, that was one view that existed. And that was kind of in the world that these reformers came out of. Most of these guys uh, were, had, been, uh, had been Catholic monks or priests uh, or in training to be so before, before they came to their new understanding of justification that we're going to talk about today. And so this is the way they were trained. This is, these are the things that they had been taught. They got this from, uh, um, from theologians who had come before them. So you can see grace is there. It's essential, but it's not sufficient. You've got to add to it. And so I'm thinking that may sound a little bit familiar. That's, that's not too awfully different from uh, the way of salvation that you might hear someone explain. Right? Someone who's maybe not speaking carefully or maybe they don't understand it uh, deeply, but they're adding to it. Yeah, God's grace is important and praise God for His amazing grace. And then I've got to do this stuff. I've got to walk in obedience. I've got to respond appropriately to it in order for it to be active, in order for it to be uh, effective in my life so that I would be declared to be righteous. And so that's the first view. The reformers were reacting against this. There's another view that said that grace maybe wasn't even really essential. This was a new uh, idea that was coming out. So via Moderna, they called it the modern view. And, and actually, this is kind of the direction Luther was heading in his own studies because he was a, uh, a theologian. He was a, a doctor of theology before uh, the Reformation started. He was a professor of theology. And in his own training and in his own teaching and some of his own understanding, you can see that he was starting to head this direction. So he, he was uh, th- this, this via Moderna was saying basically that, that grace really wasn't even maybe essential or perhaps that that uh, what would happen is you would uh, respond to God and then God would respond to you by putting grace in your life after the fact see the old way said that God put grace there and you responded to it and then things happened after that the new way is very similar to the old way except that that some of them believed that you could take that initial step of responding to God and then he could add grace after. And he could kind of meet you halfway. And he could help you. And then some even believed, even a step beyond that, that since you could make that first step of responding to God on your own, without the grace of God being essential, you, could, you basically had what it took to make it all the way on your own without the grace of God being necessary uh, even in, in order to accomplish that. And so that's the new way, the Via Moderna, right? It, was, uh, it basically had the idea that as a human, you already had within you what it took. You had the potential. You just had to live up to the potential. You had, you had what it took within you. You just needed to make the right decisions. You just needed to act accordingly or do what was within you was the, the phrase that they used. And thus you would, be, you would be responding. You would be going the direction that you should be going. And, and the way they looked at it, you could actually go so far down the path that even without the grace of God intervening, you could be declared righteous before God, even based just upon what you had within yourself. You don't have to look too far to find that theology either. Basically, for a lot of people, Christianity is about doing the right thing, making the right choices. Do this thing and you'll be good. Respond this way. Be obedient to God and you'll be declared righteous. And that's essentially what they were saying. And so this is the Via Moderna. And, and so in, in that picture, grace may have come later or God may not have even needed to give grace at all because you had within you what it took to respond to God in a saving way without even the grace of God acting. And so that was another view. So we had the first way, which was the old way. It said grace was essential uh, but it wasn't sufficient to accomplish the whole thing. The second one said that, well, actually, grace may not even be essential. Um, may, maybe it'll be added later to help you, but, but, uh, but it's possible that you might even have what it takes. And so I want to look at how they defined the term grace because they redefined it. It was, it was not the way you and I tend to understand grace, I hope, or at least it's not the biblical understanding of it. They, they, they tended to talk about grace as a healing substance, that was added to your life. It was something put into your life that kind of changed something about you so that then you could cooperate savingly with God. It was, it was, I was trying to think of a good illustration of this or way to explain it, and I'm not sure this is a great one, but it's kind of like a fuel additive that cleans your injectors, you know, so that your vehicle will respond the way it should and it will live up to its potential. It's that kind of idea. Right, that it just took that little bit of additive 
and you're kind of fixed and you're able to respond. It's a healing substance. It's something that's added to you, something that's put within you. And because of that, you know, your, your, your injectors are clean. Now you can respond to God. That's a, that's a little bit of a silly way to look at it, but it helped me in thinking about it. And I think it captures essentially what they had going on in their, in their idea. One author put it this way, according to the pre-Reformation view, the change understood to take place in the justified wasn't merely a declared change of status. Sinners were accepted by God not simply because he reckoned them righteous. Rather, they were accepted because they had, in fact, to a sufficient degree, become righteous. So you can see a difference there. You should hear a difference there when we talk about justification. We're going to talk, uh, the whole next section here is going to be about how the reformers talked about justification, but it's uh, just preview and, you know, spoiler alert. <laughs> it's, it's a declaration made by God about you. It's a legal declaration where he declares you to be righteous before him because of these things that we're going to talk about, right? Because of God's grace, because of you know, the, the Christ alone and his accomplished and imputed righteousness alone and our receiving that by faith. He declares us to be righteous. This, the, the view that they had was more of an observation that you had become righteous. God was making the observation that you had become sufficiently or adequately righteous and thus you were justified. So a little, a little detour here. If you... If you are a word person and you like the way words are built, right, and you think about the word justify, uh, the, 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 the Latin idea kind of means to make just or to make righteous. And that's a little bit misleading because when you read in the Hebrew concept or in the New Testament, you read about justification. The justification is a declaration by one person that another person uh, now has this legal status. It's not... A, an accumulation of righteousness sufficient so that you could be uh, declared or observed to be righteous. You see the difference there? So in the Latin concept, and so this, uh, some people think this, this was part of the reason that led them astray on this, but in the Latin idea, the breakdown of the word, it means to make righteous. So when God justifies you according to this Latin definition of the word, God makes you righteous so that you become righteous and thus so the grace of God worked in you to make you righteous and then God observes that you are righteous and declares you to be justified. Right? That's the, that's the Latin conception of the idea. The, the Greek and Hebrew is different. In the Bible, the conception of being justified has to do with, with one declaring, making a legal declaration. Regardless of the facts, someone's making a legal declaration. God is making a legal declaration about you. He says, I declare that you are righteous. You have right standing before me. That's different. That's different. You didn't become righteous. And so when we speak about justification, we need to be careful in our language. Sometimes we're a little bit loose, and even I've, I've said this before, and, and it's, it, if you get to explain it, it's okay, but, but uh, we don't say that, that justification is God making us righteous or us being made righteous before God because that's the idea of I accumulated and I climbed to a certain point that God declares me to be righteous. Instead, we say that it is God declaring us to be righteous. He made the legal declaration that we are righteous because of these things that we're going to talk about, because of the righteousness of Christ. Not because of my own righteousness. He can declare me to be righteous because of Christ's righteousness. That's the biblical idea of being justified. Right? So there is a difference and we need to keep those. That, that may seem like it's a, you know nitpicky, but it's not nitpicky. It's not nitpicky. So if you were living during this time under this Latin concept of being justified under either the old way or the new way or some version of those two, if you were living during this time and you wanted to be justified before God and who doesn't, right? You want to, have, you want to be rightly related to God. Well, how, how do you view it? You've got to clean up your life and add up enough righteousness in your life such that God, God observes that you are sufficiently righteous to be declared just. Look at your own life. Think about your own life and see how you're doing in that regard. See, see how far along that ladder in reality you are. 
And thus, would you be encouraged? Would you have any kind of, uh, you know, encouragement about your faith in Christ? Where, where would your assurance be if you had to look at your own life and see how you're doing before God? I would not be doing well. I would not have great assurance. I would have no, no assurance. And in fact, when you think about Martin Luther, Martin Luther was a very impressive monk. I mean, as far as the way he served God, the way he worked, the, all the things that he did, and he was in confession all this time, and, and all, he was a very impressive monk, so much so that he kind of wore out his superiors because they were like, okay, Martin, like, slow down. You're on high octane all the time. You know, you're, you're, you're uh, working really, really hard. And he never had assurance. The more he worked and the more he looked at his own life and tried to examine his own life, the more he thought David was crazy for saying that he loved God's justice. Because Martin Luther knew God's justice is bad news for me. Bad news for me. Right? And so this is, there is practical reality that works out into our lives from looking at this stuff. So that's the pre-Reformation view. Right? That's kind of, it, it was a little bit of a muddle. There were some different things going on. But in, in essence, it had to do with what you accomplished, whether it was with or without the, the help of God in your life, cleaning your life up. You had to clean your life up sufficiently to be declared to be righteous or rather observed to be righteous by God. And you never really were going to get there. And so in that, in that theological um, context, you have Martin Luther and Melanchthon and Calvin and those guys who, who begin to read their Greek New Testament. They begin to study the Bible for themselves. They begin to learn new things about uh, salvation. And first of all, they, they uh, make a big deal, a big deal out of the fact that, that uh, justification is by grace alone. By grace alone. Sola gratia. It's by grace alone. And so Luther had been taught and had taught other people that grace was this healing substance added to our lives that kind of corrected us and, and made us able to, to behave the way we should. But he saw from Scripture that that's not the definition that's there at all. He came to define it simply as God's favor. Grace is God's favor. It's His favor on you. And so that changed things. That, that, began, that, that began to change the way Martin Luther looked at justification. And he, 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 he saw that really the Christian life is not about us getting tuned up by God's grace so that we can function properly, but instead it's about God placing favor on a person. God placing favor on a person. And so when the reformers said that justification is by grace alone, what they meant was that justification happens because God places His favor on a person. That was the ultimate cause of it. He decided to place His favor on a person. Not in response to... God was not responding to uh, something that was that, that you had done that, that there, therefore caused God to play His hand. God was the ultimate cause. God was the ultimate source. Justification was by grace alone. It wasn't because you did something right and God said, yeah, good job. Here, I will respond with my grace in your life. But instead, it was the ultimate uh, source. In Luther's book, The Bondage of the Will, he argued for what is today known as biblical uh, monergism or monergism. So, and that's the idea. If synergism is the idea of two or more parties working together to accomplish something, Monergism or monergism is the idea that one actor, one person accomplishes that thing. And so Luther saw that in the Bible, justification is a monergistic thing. It is God deciding by grace alone that he's going to do this thing. And so that's what Luther taught later on. That's what Calvin would teach some decades later. And so this, they came to see that justification happens solely because of the grace of God in a person's life. Not because you earned it. Not because you had to do something to earn it. But by the grace of God in your life. And so it was, it was a very different notion than the prevailing notion of the day. You had to cooperate. You had to do stuff. You had to do things to either merit the grace of God or you had to do, uh, live a life adequate to merit the justification at the end of your life, the observation from God that you were righteous and I think 
not, not only is that concept of justification foreign in that culture 500 years ago, but it's foreign today. It's foreign in evangelicalism in America. The idea that God is the sole source of salvation. This idea of a monergistic, a bi- biblical uh, monergistic or monergistic justification, that God does it. It's by grace alone. The typical understanding, a very common understanding that you'll hear, and you don't have to look very far in popular Christian literature or, uh, or elsewhere to see that really we have this idea that when I do something, God responds with justification. I did something to initiate it. I was the cause of it. I moved towards God and thus he moved towards me. And so this idea of, of a justification by grace alone is a foreign one to us. But it's a biblical one. And, and the reformers saw it and it became a, a, major, uh, a major battle cry essentially for their understanding of justification. It is solely the work of God. Now, does that mean that, that, that we don't believe in Christ? That we don't have to respond in faith? Of course we have to respond in faith. Of course we respond in faith to Christ. But even that is a gift of God. Even that response of faith is by the work of God in our lives. It's not as if God lays it out there and says, okay, what are you going to do with it? Often the gospel is presented that way. Often the gospel is presented that way. Here is God's offer to you. Now what are you going to do with it? Now, I don't, I don't think that's a, an entirely wrong way to present the gospel, but it's, but it's not an adequate way to understand the gospel when you think about it theologically. Theologically, God doesn't just put an offer out there and then you wait and see. What are you going to do? Well, I don't know. Maybe. I don't know. When you think about it theologically, what happens is for, for those whom God is putting his grace on, he puts the offer out there and then he says, awake, come to life and believe it. And you do. It's like someone coming in when you're taking a nap, leaning down. You know, I love naps. So someone, someone comes in, they lean down real close to you, you're napping peacefully, and they say very loudly, wake up. When that happens, are you thinking in your mind, hmm, someone's talking. I can choose to wake up or not to wake up. Is that the conversation that goes on in your head? No, usually your head flies up and I'm angry at the person. Like, what'd you wake me up for? I'm taking a nap. Can't you see I'm taking a nap? But you woke up because the act of the calling woke you so that you responded by waking up. And that's the way justification by grace alone works. When God decides he's going to put his grace in a person's life, it is included with the call to wake up. And you do in faith. We do respond in faith. We do respond in obedience. But it's, it's because uh, it's coming out of that place of us already being justified. We respond in love for God. But why? It's because God loved us first. That's the biblical teaching on the topic. And so the grace of God alone is the source of our justification before God. So justification is by grace alone. It's also through faith alone. Sola fide. Through faith alone. So how is that grace of God realized in a person's life? The teaching of the day and the teaching that Luther had received in his own training as a monk and theology professor was that faith was a requirement, but it was faith that needed to be shaped by love and then a system of piety and religious activity needed to follow. So there was like this whole string of stuff, step one, two, three, that had to happen. And the reformers said, no, it is through faith alone. And this largely happened, uh, it came to light in Luther's mind when he was, he was reading through Romans chapter 1, teaching through Romans chapter 1, and very famous verse, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, verse 16, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. It is from faith for faith. It is by faith. And so he came to understand the righteous shall live by faith. He doesn't wait. God doesn't wait for us to clean up our lives and then make a declaration about us later on. Our response is faith. Jesus came for the ungodly. He died for the ungodly. God pursues the ungodly, not those who are becoming godly. He died for the ungodly. He pursues sinners. And so God grants us pardon and he declares us to be forgiven and righteous in his sight at the moment of our belief in Christ. That pardon and that declaration 
of righteousness happen when, when we believe, not when we make the necessary changes in our lives to clean ourselves up, to become obedient, etc. We will obey, but that's in response to the grace of God in our lives. That's in response to justification already happening. That's in response to us already having been declared to be righteous before God. It's a completely different way of looking at the whole thing theologically. So obedience is a is an accomplished uh, it's a condition of accomplished salvation or accomplished justification, but it's not the doorway into that salvation. I'll say that again. Obedience obedience comes out of accomplished justification, already accomplished justification. Because of that, we are obe- are obedient. It is not true that obedience is the doorway into that salvation. Which came first? Well, if you look at it before the Reformation, your obedience came first, declaration came later. When you look at it from the, from the, the Reformation perspective, declaration came first, obedience comes later. Salvation is by grace alone through faith alone. And that is good news for sinners like me and like you. I wouldn't want to try and climb this ladder. I know myself too well. I would never make that. And theologically, of course, I would never make that. But practically in my own life, I know I wouldn't make that. And I know you well enough to know you wouldn't make that either. And so we rejoice. We rejoice in the the accomplished work of Christ. And that's point C here. It's on on account of Christ's imputed righteousness alone. See, whose, whose righteousness do we stand in? According to this, this way of understanding here, you stand in your own righteousness. Yeah, God gave you a helping hand, but really, you're the one who got here. You worked, you worked your way up here, and you stand before God, and you say, well, am I righteous enough? And so we stand in our own righteousness. And for the Reformers, when they looked at it, they said, God declares us right here, right here at the very beginning, He declares us to be righteous before God. How can He do that? How can he declare us to be righteous? Because he can look at my life and see that I'm not. Well, he does because of Christ. Because of the, the obedience of Christ during his life where he was always obedient to, the God, uh, to God. He was always obedient to his Father. He was always obedient to the law. He was actively obedient in his life. And that perfect record is being applied to me by faith so that when God looks at me, he sees the, the record of Christ, the record of active obedience, and not just active obedience in his life, but passive obedience on the cross, where he took the displeasure of God, the wrath of God on himself that I deserved. He stood in my place to take that so that I could receive that paid receipt. Sins have been paid for. I have the righteousness of Christ. And that's given to me at the moment of justification here at the beginning of the Christian life. And so our justification is by grace alone, it's, it's through faith alone, and it's on account of Christ's imputed righteousness alone. It's imputed to me. His righteousness is given to me. And we talked very briefly last week about the idea of infused righteousness. And that's where God puts that healing substance in you that kind of helps you clean yourself up. That's infused righteousness. That's very different than imputed righteousness. In imputed righteousness... God can declare me to be righteous before Him because Jesus paid the penalty for my sins and because Jesus, who was always obedient, gives me His record so that now I have a perfect record before God, a perfect record of obedience before God and sins forgiven by His death on the cross. And so I stand there completely justified on account of Christ's imputed righteousness alone. What did I contribute? Nothing. How far did I work to make that happen? I didn't. It's by grace alone. And so that's the, that's the, uh, the, generally speaking, that's the Reformation view on how justification works. The, the righteousness that we have before God is not our own. It is Jesus' righteousness applied to us. And so there's nothing lacking. How confident would you feel standing before God with Jesus' record? All the way confident. 
all the way confident because we have been justified by him and it's his righteousness imputed to us and so it's accounted to us. So we want to look in our last passage here, we want to look at uh, briefly at, at Paul's view on justification as it's kind of laid out here in these few verses starting from uh, Romans chapter 3 and verse 20. And of course, verse 20 is kind of the conclusion of this section. If you go to Romans 3 again, page 941 in your pew, pew Bible. One of the uh, least encouraging sections of the whole Bible there is verses 10 through 18 because it's a whole lot of uh, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God, etc. It does not paint a rosy picture about us, about humans. We don't seek God on our own. We don't. We're not righteous on our own. We don't really care. Our mouth is full of bitterness and, and cursing and we have the venom of asps under our lips and our feet are swift to shed blood and and on and on through that passage. It's not encouraging. It's all drawn from the Old Testament. But as a conclusion to that, we see in verse 19, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So if... If we're trying to become righteous before God, if we're trying to attain that kind of adequate righteousness before Him by obeying the law, we're climbing the wrong ladder. Because the law, according to Paul right here, is intended to reveal to us our own sin. That's what it does. It reveals to us our own sin. And so if we're trying to use that in order to attain righteousness before God... To, in order to be justified, in order to be declared righteous before Him, we are climbing the wrong ladder. We will never get there. The purpose of the law is to reveal to us we don't measure up in this area and this area and this area and this area. And so how, how long, you know, how, how often does that have to be revealed to you before you're declared righteous? It's not going to end up in you being declared righteous. And so that's how... Paul concludes that whole section about the really bad news about us. Then we, he moves on into uh, in the next paragraph there, and he says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So we don't attain righteousness from the law. It's been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. How can you be righteous before God? Through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. That's how you can be righteous before God, faith in Christ. So there's no distinction for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, very famous verse, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, so just as, as everyone is guilty of sin, so everyone who will be justified will be justified by His grace as a gift. No exceptions. There's no, there's no plan B. There's no alternative. Justification is by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I just talked about that. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood. Propitiation is to bear the wrath of God fully so that it, so there's no, no wrath left over for me. Jesus stood there and bore His wrath fully so that, so that God has no wrath left for me. He has only positive disposition towards me as a result of that. By His blood to be received by faith. How do we get that? Do we work? Do we, do we achieve? Do we do some secret lit? No, it's by faith. It's by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. The justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Who is just before God? The one who has faith in Jesus. How is He justified before God? By faith. By faith in the completed work of Christ. Then what, what, what becomes of our boasting? Well, it's excluded. By, by what kind of law? Is there a rule against boasting? Well, yes, there is, but why is there no boasting according to this? Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? Meaning, don't boast, stop boasting. No, but by the law of faith. I have nothing to boast. I have nothing to boast about. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. By faith you're justified. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also, since he didn't give the law to Gentiles? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one. He will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. There's no plan B. Do we then overthrow this law, or overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. 
but it plays the role of convicting you, not of justifying you. It will not achieve justification for you. Obedience to God will not achieve justification for you. It does exactly the opposite. And so, first of all, the law brings knowledge of sin. That was A, you probably caught that. And, and B, justification is through faith. And then he moves on in the beginning of 4 and says, Faith is counted as righteousness. So starting in chapter 4, What then shall we say by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but trusts him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So when you think about Abraham, it says of him, his faith was counted as righteousness. Therefore, it was a gift, not his due, not his wages, not his payment for what he had done. So even in, the, even in the story of Abraham, even in Abraham's own life, we see that faith was counted as righteousness. So how is a person declared to be righteous before God? By faith. It is by faith in Christ, the completed work of Christ. And so we see, we see that the, the teaching of the Reformers on the topic is very clear in this passage, and we didn't spend a ton of time. We, we could spend a lot more time on that, but... but it's very clear what is happening in this passage and how a person is justified. So in the medieval church, the topic of how one might be justified before God was not a settled dogma. They, they hadn't agreed upon it. There were differing viewpoints. There was no consensus. And uh, couple that with the fact that there was also, frankly, little discussion of the topic beforehand. You begin to see why the Reformers' absolute insistence upon this doctrine as we taught it today was such a big deal in their time. And frankly, in our day today, looking at, looking at evangelical theology today, you can see that it's a crucial doctrine for us to understand today. It's so easy for us to slip in good works in there somewhere. It's so easy for us to give ourselves a role to play in that. And the Reformers agree, there is no role for us to play. It is by grace alone. This isn't just a John Calvin thing. This isn't just a Calvinist thing. This is Luther and Melanchthon as well and others. They saw this was there. Salvation is of God. It's not of God and me taking my part. It's not of God and me working my way a little bit or doing something to have earned God's initial response of grace. God's grace is not a response. It is his gift. And so I see that in evangelical theology. I see that in, in uh, some, some things that I hear and some things that I see on the Internet, and it's disturbing. And I want us to be very clear on justification and how it happens. How do we attain righteousness before God? Well, it's not by us climbing to a certain degree that now I have assurance that, I can be, that I'm, 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 I'm righteous enough for God to declare me to be just. It's by faith in Christ. And it happens to sinners Sinners like me and sinners like you, we trust in Christ and we stand before him, not with our own polluted record, but with Jesus' perfect record and in forgiveness because of what he's done on the cross. By his righteousness imputed to me, we stand before him in faith. And that's the grace of God. That is the grace of God and that is the gospel. And that's why it's such a big deal. That's why it's so important for us to spend an entire sermon on this topic and to spend an entire few months talking about justification and the things that go with it that we talk about in the Reformation. This is crucial. This is vital. This is the gospel. If we don't have this, Luther said, we don't have the gospel. In fact, Luther said elsewhere, if we lose the doctrine of justification, we lose simply everything. And it is no longer a gospel. We are now telling people what to do to clean up their lives. And we become the medieval church. God forbid. God forbid that. So, what does this matter in your life? I know some of you are like, okay, what are the application points? Now what do I go and do? (laughs) Even though we just talked about justification by faith, right? Trust in Christ. And rejoice in your right standing before him that is because of Christ alone. Rejoice in that. Rejoice in that. Put no confidence in the flesh. 
trust in Him and look to Him. And when you share the gospel, and I pray that you share the gospel, and if you're not, I pray that you begin to tell people of the completed work of Christ. Tell them the gospel. Be that person saying, wake up! And wake them up. Of course, you can't do that. But you can share, and God can do that. This is the application. Have confidence in the gospel. The true gospel. Have confidence in the justification of God because of Christ. By grace, through faith, on account of the completed work of Christ, imputed to us. Let's pray. Father, I rejoice. I have no righteousness of my own, and what I would pile up as righteousness is garbage. If I were trying to impress you, if I were to trying to stand in my own righteousness, it would be ugly and it would be eternally destructive. But I thank you for the completed work of Christ on my behalf, that I can stand before you not because I'm better than anyone, but because Jesus paid it all because he was obedient to you always and he gave me his record when I trusted in him. I, I, I rejoice in that and I, I will rejoice in that for all eternity. And I pray that each of us here would stand before you that way, not looking to our own lives, not looking to what we've accumulated, what we've acquired, what we've done, what we've achieved but that we would stand before you and plead Christ's record, plead his blood on the cross. Father, I pray that we would be a church who understands justification, that we would not muddle it, that we would not mix it up, that we would not confuse it with sanctification, that we would not confuse it with anything else, that we would communicate it clearly, that we would understand it clearly ourselves, that we would be rooted and grounded in the faith because we understand justification. Father, I pray that as we read our Bibles this week, we would see it all over and we would be encouraged. Father, I, I trust you and I trust the com- completed work of Christ on my behalf. And I stand before you with confidence, not because I'm anything, but because Christ is everything. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself And God, our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. God bless you all. If you need to come forward and pray, there's going to be a family up here to pray with you. I would love to see that happen. They would love to pray with you. God bless you all. We'll see you at the picnic this afternoon, and you are dismissed.